Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Friday, December 3rd, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, why the FBI thought that the inventor of Tickle Me Elmo might have been the Unabomber, a new potential method for freeze-drying vaccines, and it's Krampus Nacht this weekend. Here is everything you need to know about the sinister anti-Santa. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. I don't know if it's because I don't have kids or because identifying broad, single-item trends is exceedingly difficult in our oversaturated online marketing landscape, but I feel like we haven't had a hottest toy of the year for the past few holiday seasons. Like, you know, there will sometimes be something for older kids and grown-ups like those not-actually-hoverboards, but it's been a while since there's been a must-have toy that parents go all jingle all the way over. Ironically, the year that that fantastic Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sinbad film came out, 1996, the hottest toy was not Turbo Man or any kind of action figure. It was the Tickle Me Elmo. If you were alive in 1996, you can probably still hear it. That high-pitched mechanical laugh emanating from a vibrating plush toy that just never seems to end. The man responsible for the horror and joy of the Tickle Me Elmo is Mark Williams. And this week, Mel Magazine's Brian Van Hooker got the full story from Williams about how, at the same time that he was finishing work on the Tickle Me Elmo, the FBI was on his trail as a suspect in another, much more egregious crime, being behind the Unabomber attacks. Yes, the inventor of the Tickle Me Elmo was a top Unabomber suspect. And while he is completely innocent, when he shares details about his background and work, you can quickly see how he became a suspect. For a quick refresher, the real Unabomber was Ted Kaczynski, a former math professor and young prodigy who became obsessed with the idea of returning to a simpler way of life. He was a harsh critic of a lot of new technologies and directions that society was headed. Somehow, that led him to hand-make bombs from his remote cabin in Montana, which he sent through the mail or hand-delivered across the country between 1978 and 1995, injuring 23 people and killing three. But as for Mark Williams and the details of his life that led the FBI to investigate him, he has a background in nuclear physics. In one of his jobs, he worked on computer chips for airplanes as a defense contractor, and as part of that job, he ended up owning the blueprints for the exact type of plane that the Unabomber had attempted to blow up, a Boeing 727. Also for work, he had traveled to Provo, Utah, one of the places from which the Unabomber had mailed a bomb, and those geographic and professional coincidences kept on coming. Quoting Mel, Kaczynski attended Harvard from 1958 to 1962 and got a degree in mathematics. Williams, after getting his degree in physics from Iowa State University, attended Amherst College two hours from Harvard in the 1980s. Much more ominously, Williams lived in Iowa City while Kaczynski's parents lived in nearby Lisbon, just 22 miles away. Kaczynski himself never resided there, but would visit for a few weeks a year. Then there was the Berkeley connection. Kaczynski was an assistant professor in the late 60s at the University of California, Berkeley, and he later mailed two bombs to the university in the 1980s. Williams worked at Leapfrog in Emeryville, which neighbors Berkeley in the 1990s, end quote. 
Williams also had some friends who were fond of prank calls, which his wife was annoyed by, so the first ten times that the FBI called his home initially, she hung up on him. He also had a son named Nathan, bad luck considering the FBI was literally working on talking to every single person named Nathan in the entire country based on an impression of a note that they found on a Unabomber letter that said, call Nathan R. Wednesday, 7 p.m., and more bad luck for Williams, when the FBI first interviewed him at his office at LeapFrog, he was wearing a cap for a baseball team his brother coached in Forest City, Iowa. The cap simply said FC on it, and FC is what the Unabomber used to refer to himself in his manifesto. So yeah, it didn't look good for Williams. He says the FBI called him about every two weeks and were also calling tons of other people in his life and occasionally parking outside of his house and following his wife around. And while he says he wasn't too bothered by it because he knew he was innocent and he gets the sense that the FBI mostly knew that too, he does also see why they had to keep tabs on him because some of those similarities and his work in general was just too uncanny. At the same time that he was developing the Tickle Me Elmo, which meant that he had all kinds of headless electronic dolls hung up on the walls of his lab alongside wires and batteries and stuff, he was also working for a toy rocket company, so he said he was constantly getting mailed fuses and black powder, the exact same kind used to make pipe bombs. Williams must have been a seriously normal-seeming dude otherwise for the authorities not to have arrested him based on all of this, and he's also, you know, white, obviously. But fortunately for him, Ted Kaczynski was arrested in April of that year, and the FBI eventually stopped calling him. And just three months later, the Tickle Me Elmo was released in stores, causing a whole different kind of frenzy in Williams's life and that of much of the U.S. and Canada, where unexpected demand for the dolls meant store employees were getting trampled when new Elmos were put on shelves, and scalpers were selling the $30 toy for upwards of $1,500. All 1 million units manufactured sold out that first year, so after a harrowing year of FBI calls, at least Mark Williams probably had a very good Christmas. Some more cool news in the world of vaccine delivery innovation. Scientists have successfully freeze-dried a vaccine. Publishing their work in Science Advances earlier this week, the team from the University at Buffalo freeze-dried a liposome-based liquid vaccine formula specifically and said that it could be developed for use in COVID-19 vaccines, some of which notoriously require ultra-cold storage, although that is a long ways off. A quick refresher on general freeze-drying, though, quoting the University at Buffalo, First, you freeze the item you're trying to dehydrate, causing any water in it to become ice. Then, you remove the ice through a process called sublimation, in which ice turns directly into vapor under low pressure. End quote. And for this new study, they focused on, quoting again, a liquid injection that consists of ingredients including water, specialized liposomes carrying a synthetically produced version of the spike protein of the COVID-19 virus, and a small amount of sugar, which helps to protect the formula during the freeze-drying process. The freeze-dried product looks a bit like cotton candy, mint green in color. 
end quote. First author Mustafa Mabruk explained, quote, Upon dehydration, the formula was stable at elevated temperatures, and we showed that it can withstand room temperatures and even higher temperatures for at least a week. After that, we reconstituted the formula by adding water, and when we tested this in mice, it induced effective antibody responses and offered protection against the COVID-19 virus, end quote. The liposomes from the study are being researched for potential use in multiple vaccines, not just COVID-19 ones but would, of course, be incredibly useful for COVID, especially in making equitable distribution to low-income communities more feasible. And in general, I just continue to appreciate how much attention and resources are currently being put towards vaccine research from so many different angles. I think we really are approaching a tipping point that could have huge impacts on countless diseases. In today's business world, any edge could be huge. And nobody offers more timely business advice than the Harvard Business Review. Whether it's their flagship magazine or digital content featuring articles, videos, podcasts, and more, you'll gain real-world insight into the most pressing topics facing business today. And now, for just $10 a month, you'll have unlimited access to Harvard Business Review content and subscriptions. Go to hbr.org slash subscriptions and enter promo code BUSINESS. That's hbr.org slash subscriptions, promo code BUSINESS. So at the end of this upcoming weekend, there are a couple of holidays coming up that I wanted to mention ahead of time. Monday is St. Nicholas Day, and the night before that, Sunday night the 5th, is Krampusnacht. So, St. Nicholas Day, or the Feast of St. Nicholas, is typically celebrated on December 5th or 6th by Western Christian cultures, and a bit later on the 19th in Eastern Christian cultures. And at its most basic, it is a day to honor the actual St. Nicholas from Mira, just like any other feast day for saints. But over the centuries, as the various legends of St. Nicholas evolved around the world, it became a day in which some children would receive presents or a visit from St. Nicholas who would determine whether they had behaved that year. For a time, this was completely separate from Christmas celebrations, which were about honoring Jesus. This was about honoring a popular saint. Things changed around the time of the Protestant Reformation in 16th century Europe as reformers sought to eliminate all traces of Catholicism from their communities and those they dominated. They knew they couldn't get rid of the very popular Christmas celebration, but their new religion didn't believe in the need for saints, so St. Nicholas would have to go. But to appease children, they decided to move the traditional gift-giving from St. Nicholas Day on the 6th to Christmas on the 25th and have Jesus visit the children instead of St. Nicholas. But as Professor Bruce David Forbes puts it in his Christmas A Candid History, quote, One problem was that the Christ child, sometimes portrayed by a little girl in a white dress or never seen at all, generated little excitement from children and families, and soon the Christ child was making the rounds with St. Nicholas or a replacement figure. In German, the child was known as the Christkindl, which later mutated in English to Chris Kringle, and in the United States eventually and ironically became yet another name for Santa Claus. 
Another problem was that the adult figures who emerged to replace St. Nicholas were often drawn from pre-Christian midwinter folklore that bothered some Protestants even more. In the words of one Christian commentator, turning away from St. Nicholas unleashed a host of semi-pagan pseudo-St. Nicholases. Instead of making the observance of Christmas more sacred, the reverse occurred. A bewildering array of characters emerged, either as replacements for St. Nicholas or as his assistants, or as threatening counterparts who frightened children. Stand-ins for Nicholas himself included Weihnachtsmann, or Christmas Man in Germany, Old Man Winter in Finland, and Father Christmas in England. Sinterklaas held on tenaciously in the Netherlands, deflecting all substitutes. Other sometimes frightening winter visitors carried over from pre-Christian times included the witch-like Belfana in Italy and both Knischt Ruprecht and Berchte in German lands, end quote. And just like the Protestant reformers did little to remove St. Nicholas or St. Nicholas-like figures from cultural traditions, their attempts at stamping out St. Nicholas Day also failed, even in predominantly Protestant communities. It's still an important holiday, especially in parts of Central Europe, and in the Netherlands it's arguably a bigger deal than Christmas itself, although media and advertising is attempting to change that. But going back to some of those St. Nicholas stand-ins, sidekicks, and foils, another one that Forbes didn't mention is one who occasionally accompanies St. Nicholas on the eve of celebrations or stalks the town on his own, one you have no doubt heard about increasingly in recent years, Krampus. Or Krampus, if I were to pronounce it slightly more correctly. Krampus comes from Alpine folklore and evolved over time to be a kind of anti-Santa Claus. He varies across cultures, time, and interpretations, but he is generally depicted as a dark, hairy, demonic figure with horns, cloven hooves, and an unsettlingly long tongue. He often comes bearing chains and sometimes bells and almost always has a bundle of birch rods with which to beat naughty children. As a foil to jolly old Saint Nick, Krampus does have certain similarities. He appears at the same time to judge children on their behavior, of course, and in some versions even carries a large sack with him, although his is not filled with gifts but is rather used to kidnap children so he can later eat them or drown them or drag them down to hell. But otherwise, you know, he's just like dear old Santa Claus. According to National Geographic, Krampus's name derives from the German word for claw, and he is sometimes considered to be the son of the Norse god Hel, ruler of Helheim, aka the underworld. And he can sometimes be conflated with or is thought to be an evolution of other folkloric figures. Most closely, Persden, but also figures like Knischt Ruprecht, Belsnickel, and the Dutch's uncomfortably racist Black Peter, who is somehow still commonly portrayed in blackface today. That is a whole other story. But Krampus has quickly become the most well-known of the alternative Yuletide characters globally. Traditional celebrations might go something like this, quoting Smithsonian Magazine, Young men in town dress up as the mythical figure and parade through the streets in an ancient pagan ritual meant to disperse winter's ghosts. They march dressed in fur suits and carved wooden masks and carrying cowbells. The tradition, also known as Krampuslauf or Krampus Run, is having a resurgence throughout Austria, Germany, Slovenia, Hungary, and the Czech Republic, and has gained recognition in the United States. End quote. 
But in many of those places these days, the Krampuslauf is more associated with drinking and devious revelry than ancient pagan rituals. Lots of festivals featuring all sorts of activities, some based in tradition and some just like goth versions of Christmas, are cropping up in towns all across Europe and North America. And as you might guess, that Krampus run has turned into actual runs, like 5k races in parts of the US. Just like St. Nick, Krampus is not immune to commercialization. While there are recent critiques that Krampus is becoming too commercial, it's nothing new. Starting in 1890, Austrian companies began making Krampus-themed postcards that looked much like other holiday postcards of the time, but with the demonic goat man on them, often in the midst of torturing a child and with phrases printed on them reminding children to be good. The postcards, or Krampuskarten, grew in popularity over the next few decades up until the start of World War I, and they weren't just meant to be foreboding for children. They were sometimes comical or even romantic, showing Krampus in sensual scenarios with women. Quoting National Geographic, these adult cards seem to portray Krampus as kitsch or ironic long before Americans held their first Krampus bar crawl. End quote. And from a separate National Geographic article, quote, Krampus's frightening presence was suppressed for many years. The Catholic Church forbade the raucous celebrations, and fascists in World War II Europe found Krampus despicable because it was considered a creation of the Social Democrats. But Krampus has been having a resurgence over the past few years, thanks partly to a bah humbug attitude in pop culture, with people searching for ways to celebrate the Yuletide season in non-traditional ways, end quote. And with Krampus more popular than ever, if you want to celebrate this weekend, you have plenty of options to choose from. New Orleans is staging a full-on drive-through Krampus-themed parade for the fifth year in a row. And just a bit northwest up in Shreveport, the necromancer Haunted House is extending their haunted season by offering photos with Krampus, a play on kids' pictures with Santa. There's also a Krampus Fest in Orlando, a family-friendly Krampusnacht festival in Milwaukee, and a Krampus pageant in San Francisco, hosted by the amazing Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence, with proceeds going to Trans Lifeline and The Trevor Project. You can also get a 12 Days of Krampus craft beer package from Southern Star Brewing Company in Houston. Limited supplies are available at a few chain stores like Specs and Total Wine, but you're probably going to need to be local to the tap room in Conroe to really get your hands on a box. And, of course, you can watch the 2015 horror comedy film Krampus, directed by Michael Dougherty and starring Adam Scott and Tony Collette. And apparently there is an extended R-rated Blu-ray edition coming out on the 7th called Krampus, The Naughty Cut. The original cut out a few scenes and dialogue so it could get a PG-13 rating, so I would expect more gore, more swearing, and maybe a bit more of the dark lore. So if you've been bummed that Halloween is over or just want to do something a bit different for the holidays this year, Krampus could be your answer. Well, that is it from me for this week. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday.